Just like in any like professional sports, you would need an umpire, you would need a referee. You need there's somebody on the field has to actually be there calling, you know, making sure that the players are playing within the rules of the game, right? That's how in the same thing with markets, there are rules and laws and to make them competitive so that the outcome is mutually beneficial for all participants, you need um, regulation. Everything is regulated. Now, the thing about Bitcoin is that it's self, it is self-regulating and it is perfectly regulated within itself. It's inert within itself. That's what gives it the aesthetic beauty. What's up, Sats fans? And welcome to another episode of Swan Signal. I am your host, Sam Callahan, lead analyst at Swamp Bitcoin. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects, as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com slash private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today. Uh, we got a guest that needs no introduction. Uh, he is a Bitcoin OG, uh, Mr. Max Kaiser. He's been telling people to buy Bitcoin on live television since it was $1. Fast forward to today with Bitcoin hovering around 30000 uh, Max has seen it all. And so we are very pleased to have him on the show. Max, welcome back. Yeah, great to be back. Great to be back. You know, Max and Stacy have been at it this for a long time. We're OGs. <laughs> yeah, I'd say you are the definition of an OG, my friend. Uh, you're the host of the Orange Pill Podcast. I've been listening to you guys for years. Um, and now you're doing all sorts of wonderful stuff uh, down in El Salvador, which we'll definitely get into. I wanted to kind of touch on what you just said, though, because one thing that I've noticed is you know, people tend to advocate for Bitcoin and get popular in the space uh, through their educational efforts, uh, but they kind of drop off after a few years. But there has been a couple constants, and that's you and Stacy. And so, what keeps you going? Uh, because you you've seen uh, ups and downs, and Bitcoin uh, through all of the developments that have occurred uh, over the years, and you've been this one constant force, always advocating for Bitcoin. So, what keeps you going, Max? I think it's the um, just the aesthetic of the of of the Bitcoin protocol. You know, it's so beautiful. It's like being trapped in a room with the greatest artwork ever, like being in the Sistine Chapel. I can't imagine ever tiring from seeing the Sistine Chapel if I was there, just staring at it or great architecture or, you know, we're always attracted to great architecture and we live in cities where there's always great architecture or something great happening. So it's just the greatness of the, the protocol is, is really inspiring. And, uh, so it keeps us coming back for more. I think, uh, that's, uh, it never, it, it never grows old really. It's, uh, it's a beautiful piece of architecture. Yeah. But some people seem to not, uh, fully understand or appreciate Bitcoin, um, and I think one of those people could be uh, Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong. Um, and, and I wanted to touch on this to kind of start off because he recently was in the news saying that the SEC is telling him to delist all these other cryptocurrencies except Bitcoin. And he was as quoted as saying that would essentially mean the end of cr the crypto industry in the U.S. So what's your response to Brian Armstrong? Right. Um, well, you know, there's always been a few schools. Uh, in in Bitcoin, right? And Brian Armstrong would fall into the category of, let's say, Silicon Valley startup who sees Bitcoin as a means to an end, and that is to do some venture capital, to go public, to make a lot of money. And so he, he, he never really said anything that would stand out as being particularly uh, appreciative of Bitcoin as the perfect money beautiful architecture that it is. You know, we had the, during the fork wars of 2017, you had the New York agreement and you had, oh man, I think it was up to 20 companies uh, really that showed their hand that they were looking to control Bitcoin purely for commercial purposes to better their financing needs and to just go down the typical path of a Silicon Valley startup and, 
and uh, showed no appreciation for the protocol and, and the underlying aesthetic uh, at all. You know, in my case, I had the um, the experience back in the 1990s of actually, you know, have actually, I have a patent on a on virtual currencies. I I can claim rightfully to be the inventor of virtual currencies. I have the only patent on a virtual currency, virtual market making, and virtual securities that goes back to 1996. And that was born out of my experience on Wall Street in the 1980s. And what attracted me to Wall Street in the 1980s, aside from the obvious uh, remuneration possibilities, was just I loved um, the mechanics of it and the market making in particular and price discovery. You know, price discovery is a topic that I can talk endlessly about. And with Bitcoin, it's kind of the end of price discovery because everything will be priced in Bitcoin eventually. Everything goes to zero against Bitcoin. And so for someone like myself who's been following this for 40 years, finance, markets, technology, um, you know, Bitcoin is the holy grail. You know, it's the end all. I, I would say that um, I, you know, my compatriot in all of this would be Michael Saylor, who really, you know, when you hear Michael Saylor talk, he talks about the aesthetics of Bitcoin, the beauty of Bitcoin. And he, he, he speaks about it in, in a way that I think carries the torch from the Max and Stacy from 2011, uh, you know, he started buying it, I guess, when it was uh, 10,000 or 12,000 or so in the 2020 era. So we were we were there from 2011 to 2020. I think he's kind of carried the torch from 2020 in a lot of ways uh, and introduced Bitcoin to massive pools of capital. I I'm surprised that more companies haven't followed his lead, given the outbreak and inflation that we've had exactly as he predicted it, the melting ice cube, as he called it at that time, is exactly what what happened. And I'm surprised more companies, although I guess we could say now um, we are in, in an era where BlackRock and these other major institutions are now finally looking at Bitcoin. So his work on the institutional level, I guess, is bearing fruit now three years uh, later. And uh, I see in um, the Middle East, uh, they're starting to recognize Bitcoin. And um, so that's a huge pool of capital. I think all that oil money, uh, when it finds its way into Bitcoin, will be a huge catalyst for higher prices. It's a natural way for the oil industry to um, diversify their portfolio and to uh, because Bitcoin essentially is energy and I think energy eventually gets priced in Bitcoin and there's a marriage between these two in a big way. So, um, I, yeah, I think that's the kind of the answer is I've always been fascinated by price discovery and markets and kind of the architecture of markets and how markets work under the hood. And, you know, Bitcoin is just such a, you know, it's a pristine, perfect money. And uh, I think it's something that humans have been searching for for since forever. And um, now we're seeing it change society on really a fundamental level uh, with the introduction of Bitcoin. It's, it's a lot of people are freaking out because of it, because it destroys the status quo. And a lot of people who were kind of waiting for it to come along, who had the faith, you know, that humanity could be saved. You know, they see Bitcoin in those terms. So you have this split going on, which is very exciting. And um, so it just continues on and on. How could you not be interested in it? How could you? I, I think the people who were into, into it earlier and, and walked away just never got it from the beginning. So like, a, let's say a Roger Ver, for example, who was early, came in at about the same time as we did. Um, you know, he just I don't think he ever really got it on that level. You know, he just kind of saw it as a means to an end and did other projects. And I think that's true for a lot of people. There's very few, um, there's just, there are a few um, that really have been in it for this long and kind of see it in those terms. And um, every day we, there's more coming in. So uh, certainly with El Salvador, we've had a chance to orange pill a nation and uh, we've been on the ground for almost two years. The president is, um, completely on board. You know, he's, he was tweeting about Bitcoin years ago. Um, and he completely gets it. And, uh, so it's, it's having a huge impact on El Salvador in a big way. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly uh, touch on El Salvador uh, later in the show because I want to hear all about it, but I also am curious to hear about 
you know, you used to work on Wall Street. Um, and you're just starting to see now these Wall Street, these prominent Wall Street individuals start to understand Bitcoin or at least start to publicly change their tune around Bitcoin. Um, do you see those developments as, as like everything's good for Bitcoin or do you kind of want them to kind of hold off so that individuals have more time to stack sats? Uh, do you think there's any perceived threats around uh, these big banks starting to get involved with Bitcoin? Like, how do you kind of view these developments? Well, um, it was inevitable, of course, that Wall Street would get into Bitcoin. And, you know, my background is mostly in Wall Street. So my introduction to Bitcoin and the way I saw Bitcoin from the beginning was from that perspective. So I wasn't coming to it necessarily from the technological front, and I wasn't coming it to it necessarily from the philosophical um, angle. You know, I, mostly I saw it, and my first question back in 2011 was, is this an asset class? Because if it is an asset class, if it's a new asset class, then the potential is enormous because there's $100 trillion, $200 trillion worth of investable assets around the world, and they're very competitive with each other. The hedge fund industry, the private equity industry, they're extraordinarily competitive. And they're all looking to, you know, get the edge on on the, on the other guy in the industry. And if Bitcoin enters that arena as an asset class and you have hedge funds starting to outperform based on their Bitcoin position, you know, you're going to have this huge uh, groundswell of capital moving into Bitcoin. And I think that's the stage we're at now. So when a BlackRock or some of these other big funds, Paul Tudor Jones was, I think, probably the first hedge fund to mention yeah. Bitcoin in a big way. And um, so when when it becomes a recognized as an asset class, and if you listen to Larry Fink and these people in on Wall Street, they, you know, the, the phrase that they use will be, well, you know, we see it as an asset class. So that's like a green light that says, um, you know, we, once it's categorized as an asset class, you know, we have nothing to do except position ourselves in this asset class. Either we're going to be a small position or a big position, but we cannot ignore it. We, we cannot not have a position. And so any, even 1% of that multi hundred trillion dollar fund funds available, you know, moves the needle on Bitcoin It moves it up considerably. So if you get into the five to 10% range, and, you know, then you start to see it really race ahead to those very, very seven figure type predictions that people have been making, including myself, for, for years, because it is an asset class. Now, on the flip side, you know, you have the what, what we saw in the gold market, which is that the ability to control price discovery and manipulate prices is real uh, through the derivatives market. So the price of gold has been lagging inflation for 20 years because the governments around the world don't like gold making their fiat money look bad. So they make it easy for huge funds to manipulate the price of gold and to scalp and to continuously skim profits off gold, which is what they do almost every day. You can watch it and see it. It's pretty, it's pretty clear. And they are um, very good at keeping the price of gold and silver down. You know, there are something like for every ounce of silver, there's probably 50 ounces worth of derivatives floating in the various exchanges around the world that are used to keep the price of silver down uh, because governments, again, governments don't want gold to race ahead and to draw capital out of their fiat money scam into gold. Uh, with Bitcoin, we have the ability to pull our private keys which is not really available in gold. Technically, you, people can take delivery of gold on these exchanges, but there's never been an organized attempt to do so. We tried to do it a few years ago with Crash JP Morgan Buy Silver because after the 2008 financial crisis, when JP Morgan ended up buying Bear Stearns uh, effectively for nothing, they inherited uh, this huge multi-million short silver position that Bear Stearns was managing on at the behest, presumably of very, you know, the government, you know, the government likes to stay, stay involved. And so um, I did some calculations and it became clear that if this short position wasn't covered um, and the price of silver got to, you know, 60 or $70 an ounce, 
it would bankrupt JP Morgan. Hmm. So we started this crash JP Morgan by silver campaign and we got the price from 15 up to 50, which was the old, wow. uh, you know, a bunk, you know, the bunker, what the hunt, the hunt brothers, the hunt brothers yeah, got yeah. Price in, up the 80s. To, in the eighties to fill the into the 50 dollar range and they were cornering silver. So, uh, we got it back up to the old hunt brothers, $50 level. And then the feds of course came in and they, um, change the laws overnight to make it possible for these banks to uh, have and carry much greater short positions in silver. So they did, they printed up a lot of paper silver derivatives and they, um, they stopped the run, the, the run on their, on their bank. And mm. uh, the price went back to 15 or so. So, um, so we, we've seen that it is possible to force capitulation in the silver market. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, because the ability to pull private keys is not like it is with Bitcoin, um, I don't think it ever it will ever succeed. Whereas with Bitcoin, you can pull your private keys. And and that is what um, the late great, I shouldn't say late, but the uh, the former Bitcoin superstar, Trace Mayer, uh, started a campaign that on January 3rd of every year, people would, uh, you know, pull their keys off exchanges as a way to maintain integrity and, and to prevent uh, these derivatives bubbles from building up to, to excessive price manipulating levels. Um, you know, that was, uh, you know, just to give a shout out to trace. I mean, before, you know, Michael Saylor, everything Michael Saylor says about Bitcoin in terms of an asset class, trace Mayer said first, you know, starting, you know, he was a buyer of Bitcoin at Definitely. 25 cents, you know, and going back to 2010. Right. And then he, but he's he's another example of somebody who who disappeared, uh, one yeah. of the OGs who disappeared, uh, and that's kind of an interesting uh, story as well. But um, so uh, yeah, you're right that when you have huge money in these markets, they have the ability to to manipulate price. And uh, but a couple of things I think with uh, Bitcoin because it in order for the gold suppression scheme to work, you really need cooperation amongst all the bullion banks. So there really, there really is a gold cartel. And the risk, of course, whenever you have a scheme like that is that, you know, you have, if you're short, you know, obviously you have a risk on the upside. And, but with gold, you know, under the best case scenario, even let's say uh, a war is started and we've already had a couple of examples of that. It didn't really have a much of an impact on price, but I mean, what are we, we're saying the price maybe could jump 10, 15, 20% with gold. You know, you, you're, you're risking 10, 20% on your short position to skim, you know, 1% every couple of days uh, in, in perpetuity, right? So that's, that's a risk these banks will take. But with Bitcoin, you know, you really, uh, if BlackRock or the Saudis or somebody came in and said, we're putting an order in for half a trillion Bitcoin and the price goes from 30,000 to 120,000, you know, you're, you're, that's, that's a huge move and you're going to get wiped out if you're short. And so it's really, it's going to be off. It's going to be difficult to maintain an anti-Bitcoin price suppression cartel because the upside is just too incredible. It's uh, you're talking millions of dollars a coin. And so it'll, there will always be at least one of these players to drop out of the cartel. You know, you won't be able to get a cartel organized. So that's one thing that Bitcoin has in, in its favor uh, additionally, it's easy to pull the keys. Um, and then, um, thirdly, um, you just have in the background, the ongoing collapse in fiat money world. I mean, the fiat money world is really at the end of a 300 year period or experiment going back to the creation of the bank of England. Um, and this idea that fiat money could work. I mean, we, we now the, we know after 300 years that it never works. They all go to zero. None have ever survived or, or lost 99% of their purchasing power. So I think we're entering a new, uh, a new epoch where the fiat money is, is going to be history. Uh, the CBDCs that are coming up by central banks are just a, an attempt to reinvent fiat money. And um, it's um, not, not going to compete with Bitcoin. People are going to see Bitcoin as the path away from centralization, CBDCs, and everything else that comes with it. And they're going to continue to embrace Bitcoin as a way toward 
economic freedom and just freedom in general. Yeah. And, um, you know, one country that has taken the lead there is El Salvador. And you, you mentioned President Bukele. And I think it was just such an amazing feat when you had a president of a country um, choose Bitcoin, uh, a, a money that he can't control, the government can't control as legal tender. And, you know, I really want to applaud what you and Stacey have done there. You guys moved there and you've been working, you know, boots on the ground um, to try to push Bitcoin's adoption there. I guess that's kind of my first question for you. Uh, you, you know, you know, Max, you've been here since a dollar. Um, you know, I can assume that maybe you don't need to do this for financial reasons, but you, you and Stacey are in El Salvador pushing adoption. Why was it so important for you to go there? And, and, and why did you want to be a part of the, the movement where to help them kind of adopt Bitcoin? Well, it was always, uh, going to be the case that like a country would make Bitcoin legal tender. I remember we had tour Demister on Kaiser report five or six years ago, and we were debating, you know, what country would be the first to make Bitcoin legal tender. And tour said, well, it's going to be a small country. It's going to be somebody, a country looking to escape maybe, um, the dollar hegemony, et cetera. And, but El Salvador was not one of the countries we guessed, but, the idea is that definitely at some point a country would make Bitcoin legal tender. So El Salvador was that country. And so Max Asasi went there and we met with the president and it was obvious that he was completely orange gold and understood uh, Bitcoin at the, at the deepest level. And so this would, would be, a, a, you know, the Bitcoin Citadel, this would be a, a country now is going to be is going to be recreated from scratch because remember El Salvador had been through fifty years of hell, uh, civil war, and then the gang wars, and the country's being rebuilt really from scratch, and it would be built on Bitcoin as legal tender. So that was couldn't imagine a more exciting project to be a part of. So we moved there, and we've been able to. Uh, offer our, our thoughts on how, on some stuff and, and, um, make great friends there. And the attitude there is just fantastic. The, the attitude in El Salvador, because, because of Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin is known by hundred percent of the population. It doesn't, you don't, you don't actually need to use Bitcoin to be orange pilled because the, the mindset of Bitcoin is already, you're making a change in your life. Uh, and then you have 5, 10, 15, 20% of the population actually using it and the adoption rate is is uh, increasing, et cetera. But the mindset is 100% part of the daily life. And um, the optimism that comes with having unconfiscatable wealth that you can aspire to, to make uh, better in your life, to accumulate uh, property, to have property, unconfiscatable property for you and your family, you know, it has a, it has a tremendous impact and you can feel it wherever you travel um, throughout the country. There's just an optimism there and uh, which you don't you don't really have uh, elsewhere. I mean, in the U.S., I think by contrast, the, the mood seems a bit of, to be a bit down, a bit a bit of a downer. Uh, people are less optimistic um, because there just seems to be. Um, very um, not much of a, a focus uh, on what what the country should be doing right now. Uh, you know, it seems a bit lost. Uh, so, uh, but you don't find that in El Salvador. The El Salvador is very focused, and people are um, just in a great in a great place. Yeah, and um, this is uh, just you know permeates throughout throughout the uh, throughout life there. Hmm. I. Uh... It's been like two years since uh, El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender. When they first did it, the IMF came out and they said, you know, this is really irresponsible. Um, they were worried that this would like, bring El Salvador down. The bonds started to trade lower into distressed territory. Um, you recently called the IMF the original shitcoin, which I think is amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I've looked into the IMF a lot and one of the worst loans that they've made was to El Salvador during their civil war in the 80s, where they basically just gave, picked a side that they wanted to win, 
gave them the money and then all the money was used to fund for weapons, not to build any kind of productive um, endeavors for the economy. It was just kind of wasted in the, in the war efforts. Um, and, and so they got straddled with all this debt. And here's the IMF saying, hey, don't, don't adopt this perfect money. Uh, we're worried about your situation. But fast forward to today, and uh, what would you say to the IMF? Because it seems like El Salvador has only grown stronger uh, since they adopted Bitcoin. No, that's 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 accurate. That's true. Uh, you know, I mean, the IMF is a central bank, so central banks don't like decentralized money. So I mean, that's I think that's the the whole story. Um, yeah. And they don't like the idea that a country could adopt Bitcoin and um, decentralize itself away from the global banking cartel and away from centralized banks and everything that comes with the centralized banks. Certainly in Central America, if you read John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, this has been the countries where America has sent the economic hitman to topple governments and and to and to uh, start coups. There's been like 50 mm-hmm. coups, uh, you know, many of them yeah. sponsored by the US in this in this area over the over the years. And um, the U.S. has always treated Central America as, quote unquote, their backyard. They don't really see it as independent. They think it's somehow an appendage to the U.S. in some way that they have just total control over. If you look at the history of, let's say, the Ford Motor Company or other corporations and certainly the, um, the, you know, what became Chiquita Bananas, uh, originally the uh, not U.S. fruit, but um, I'll think of the name in a second. But anyway, the banana cartel was of course exploiting um the central american countries in in a quite damaging way for years and years and um you know this is um this is hard to to break up right the imf would prefer that it had a client state and an easy mark to sell their dodgy loans to but uh bitcoin is is rewriting uh, the history books and uh with decentralized money and a obviating the need for central banks. I mean, central banks, as I was saying before, they're coming to the end of a 300 year um, period, a cycle. You know, we just, there's no point in having a central bank. And um, so now that I think they're going to become extinct and um, the region is not benefiting greatly uh, from El Salvador taking on Bitcoin. And um, so the IMF is just becoming irrelevant really. Yeah, I uh, I tend to agree, and I think that El Salvador is is proving to be a great case study for other countries to look at. I mean, when you look at things, I, I saw you tweet something about how, uh, in terms of Central America and the Caribbean, it has the fastest uh, growth rate in terms of the fintech industry there, like up twenty five percent, and um, El Salvador is leading the way. And mm-hmm. so, you guys, uh, Stacy and and you and actually Jimmy Song. Um, helped kind of develop a, a course uh, for the locals there to help them teach them how to develop on the Bitcoin protocol. And you guys just uh, had a, your first graduating class, I believe. So can you talk a little bit about um, that program and why you guys decided to start that? Yeah, absolutely. So it was about a year ago or so. Uh, Jimmy Song came to El Salvador to teach a, a class in his book, Programming Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And this was really Stacy identified the need to educate local developers and programmers in El Salvador because to, to kind of grow your own homegrown talent. And um, so this little pilot program with Jimmy went really, really well. And so the idea was, well, you know, maybe we should just canvas the, the entire country. So Stacy organized what became now Kubo Plus, which is uh, the the country had assist had these cubes cubos already in place. They are um, local community centers. So Cubo Plus is um, built on this concept, and mm-hmm. to reach out to everyone in the country to find try and find the best and the brightest in the country, uh, work with universities, find really talented people, and bring them into like almost a Top Gun school. So for uh, three weeks, really, the the best and the brightest came to um, San Salvador and El Zante, the, the beach community, Bitcoin Beach. 
And the best professors, the Bitcoin professors in the world were brought together. The best students were brought together. And, um, and at the, uh, the final kind of leg of this Top Gun school, you had 21 uh, of these excellent students came together and um, finished the course. And they are now getting, getting jobs. They're getting these high-paying, high-level jobs that you get if you're a, a Bitcoin developer, which is a global industry. It's a global, you have global demand for this type of, uh, uh, of a talent. And so now this is uh, at the end of this, really the first semester, the first season, if you will, of, of uh, Cubo Plus. And the graduating class has uh, opportunities, they're getting jobs. And of course, now the next um, season, the next uh, school year, if you will, will be, of course, much, much bigger because the word has gone out that this is really mm -hmm. a way to enter into the upper echelons in the high income world is through Kubo Plus and through Bitcoin development. And so the, it's been a, a really fantastic uh, success. Uh, Stacy and uh, a crew of filmmakers from uh, Hollywood uh, were in El Salvador making a documentary about oh, this. Cool. So in this documentary will, I think, drop in the next uh, week or so. Oh, nice. And it really tracks, you know, it's a brilliant documentary. Filmmakers we've, we've known for a long, long time who are excellent filmmakers. And um, so they came in and uh, Stacy directed this documentary, which is uh, covering Kubo Plus. So you'll see really um, these students and what's going on with the students and great shots of the country itself. And because El Salvador has not really been featured in many films or TV over the years. There's only one film that was made in the 1950s, I believe that had El Salvador in, in the film, but it's just a really gorgeous country everywhere. You look, the scenery is fantastic. And that's, you know, part of this, this great documentary is just seeing, you know, this country, uh, what it looks like is really gorgeous. So that's what's, that's the Kubo plus. So that's part of what Max and Stacy do in El Salvador. We try to figure out ways to, uh, make Bitcoin country, you know, make it, get the education, get the visitors, help people here, help people there. That's what we've been doing. Yeah, and another thing uh, that you've been working on, I mean, you're wearing the hat right now, is Volcano Energy, which I definitely want to touch on. Uh, it's kind of one of the things that were an early announcement when El Salvador first announced that it would make Bitcoin legal tender was they would use the Volcano Energy uh, to mine Bitcoin. And it got everyone really excited. Um, but then in June 2023, um, it finally kind of announced some details around it. And uh, you are the chairman of the Volcano Energy. And so can you, can you tell me a little bit about the project? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's been a lot written about it and, um, it's, I encourage people to do a little, uh, Google search on volcano energy and get all the press releases and the stories that have been written about it. There's a lot of information out there. Uh, I, I guess, you know, the big, the, you know, when, when we first started talking about, uh, geothermal energy in the country, uh, we talked about different ways to tap into that and how to capitalize it. And uh, after really it wasn't that long, I guess, 18 months, 19 months, mm -hmm. this idea of launching this uh, this company, Volcano Energy, finally came together. So it's really a PPP, public-private partnership. Uh, the government is uh, a stakeholder and we work with the government. And uh, it's be because the lead time for... Uh, geothermal is pretty lengthy. We're talking, you know, four or five years to develop geothermal. Uh, the idea is in the meantime, kind of to fill in the gap here, we're, we're doing wind and solar. So okay. wind and solar uh, is launched first. And uh, this is Bitcoin mining using renewable energy, wind and solar. And as we build out the geothermal, geothermal comes online, um, you know, in a few years. Um, so, and then you'll have all three wind, solar, geothermal working. And, um, we, we think that we can be a pretty substantial player in, in, in the Bitcoin mining space and have a nice significant part of the global hash rate. Um, it gets back, I guess you could say I was very early 
maybe five years ago and talking about what I call the global hash race or the global hash war. Yeah. Uh, you know, people were saying that, oh, what if this country bans Bitcoin? What if this, you know, what they're going to get banned? And I, at that time, I said, and this was going back five years or more, I said, the more likely scenario is that countries will start to competitively mine Bitcoin because they'll recognize it as the hardest money ever. And just like they would want to hoard gold, and you had the gold standard and people mining gold and developing the wealth of nations with based on gold, you know, you would have the same thing happen with Bitcoin. And so now what this is exactly what we're seeing. So El Salvador at the moment, I would say, is winning the global hash race because, you know, this is really the only country that's actively making it policy that we want to mine and and we want Bitcoin on our balance sheet. And um, and that's. That's how this all got going. Um, it's very strategic. The president, President Bukele, recognized this early on, and uh, he 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 sees that this is the future. So uh, we raised a billion dollars um, for the project, and uh, two hundred fifty million has been deployed already. Uh, so we're, we're on the ground uh, right now, and it's. Uh, it's happening. So our, our ambition is to win the global hash race. You know, we want the most Bitcoin. We want the biggest Bitcoin position. We want the cheapest mining. We want the best miner. This is the future. And I think, you know, we want to be uh, number one. We want to be absolutely at the top, top of the pyramid on this. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's been interesting to watch how the game theory kind of plays out. Yeah. And yeah. And, and El Salvador is definitely taking the lead there. And, uh, and everyone else seems to still asleep at the wheel. And you brought up how like people just feel more hopeful there, which I think is really interesting to think about in contrast to developed nations with dealing with all this inflation right now. And you have the central banks just kind of doubling down. I mean, the governments just continue to print. I mean, we're running still trillion dollar deficits with inflation uh, raging right now. And so when you look at kind of the state of fiat, I mean, are you one of those believers that think that this is going to take decades and decades and decades to collapse? Or do you think that this is really the end game here with, uh, you know, 300 years you've brought up and right around the corner. And then people are going to have to jump into this orange life raft sooner than people think. I mean, you've brought out price targets of $220,000 before. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Because it seems like things are shaky, but there's other people that are like, Hey, this is going to take, you know, decades and decades and decades to play out. Uh, right. Well, uh, you know, it's a global fiat money game and you see different countries, their their fiat money regimes are collapsing in real time. Right. Um, yeah. Argentina, you know, in, in these countries like this or Lebanon recently had a complete collapse or central mm -hmm. bank collapsed. And um, Inflation is definitely an indication that your fiat money regime is is in dire straits and inflation is breaking out in, in a big way. It's not it's not going to return to where it was before this latest inflation breakout and inflation and, and the collapse of fiat money is here now. People are feeling it right now. Mm -hmm. And the quality of life all over the world is being impacted by it. And it's being impacted in the U.S., you know, people can't buy a home, people can't afford food, price of uh, oil and energy is now starting to ramp back up again. So it's it's playing out right now. And there's um, there's nothing that can be done to stop this inflation. Be, be, there's the, the, the economy is completely out of control. Right. So the, even mm -hmm. the interest on the debt in the U.S. is now over a trillion so I think it's the biggest line item on the budget, bigger than the military. So there's, you know, the, what we were told for decades was, oh, you know, um, trickle down economics or what have you. You know, we're, they we're going to grow the economy and those the increased tax revenues, we're going to pay down our debt. That, that was the theory for years, you know, that they're going to uh, stimulate aggregate demand and it's going to cause GDP growth, which will increase tax revenues and we're going to pay down our debt. Well, that never, ever, ever happened and predictably never happened. It was just about printing more money and a lot of malinvestment, that is to say, thieving going on 
and the capital disappearing, trillions of dollars just going into a global black hole controlled by the big four accounting firms, this floating casino that never pays taxes, which is now over $30 trillion in big, right? So there is no coming back. There's only, there's always only two possible pathways. Either you, you enter into a fatal type of hyperinflation, or you're just going to default across the board and you go into a, a deflationary depression. So it's, it's a depression in either way. It's either an inflationary depression, um, like you see in, in, in like a Zimbabwe, or it's a deflationary depression like you had in the 1930s. But either way, the quality of life is deteriorating and it's doing so in the U.S., in a big way. And so, and, and there's, there's no, nobody's coming forward with anything, any solutions because it's past having a solution. Uh, meanwhile, there are now three or four candidates for president and other political offices that are talking about Bitcoin, right? So RFK Jr. talks about Bitcoin. Ron DeSantis talks about Bitcoin. Um, Cynthia Lummis has also been talking about Bitcoin. So people, the you know, political class is beginning to see uh, Bitcoin as part of the solution going forward. And as you start to get into more of a Bitcoin frame of mind, um, you know, this is, this will be a transition um, from the fiat money world to a Bitcoin standard and it'll be driven not, I don't see it taking decades, you know, because it'll be the result of another colossal wave of bank failures, which is mm. baked into the cake, really. The, the banks are insolvent. They're held together with the counting chicanery. There's nothing there. The central banks are completely devoid of any assets whatsoever. They're leveraged worse than Enron. I think the Federal Reserve is leveraged 90 to one or something like that. It's completely <laughs> the Bank of Japan, which is really the linchpin central bank in the world. If you want to know really, and you want to follow the global central bank um, kind of scene, you would follow the Bank of Japan because they've always been the funding currency for many decades now where other central banks would borrow from the Bank of Japan, uh, Japan and invest in higher yielding currencies in what's called the carry trade and mm -hmm. to, to try to extract another 20 or 30 basis points. The Bank of Japan has always been the cheapest source of funds and they because they've been tapping into their country's pension funds, which were overfunded by billions of dollars for many years. And they've kind of run out of that and they've run out of that money and they're going bankrupt. And now... Um, Japan, it looks like it's entering into um, default. And, the, and that will drag everybody else down with it. And so people, if you turn on CNBC or you turn on financial news or you read the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, it should be front page news that what's happening in Japan, but it's it's not. Um, so it'll be a big shock. You know, it'll be one day it'll be like, oh, Japan just went bankrupt. And um, the world is a very different place and it'll, everyone will say nobody saw it coming, but it's clearly been brewing now for many years. And it's like every single day you can just see this catastrophe inching toward the abyss. And I, you know, it's, it's, we're at, we're at the, we're at the zero line. And um, I think we're, we're, we're talking months away. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's inter your story is really interesting to me because you worked in Wall Street, and I, I just think of like a young Max Kaiser, and you're learning how the sausage is made. And <laughs> why do you think you, you know, you kind of called bullshit on this thing and felt compelled to start speaking publicly about this stuff? I mean, back around 2010, it, I mean, it was like you and, I mean, honestly, Peter Schiff was out there kind of talking about kind of the follies of Wall Street and central banking. Um, but he doesn't get Bitcoin, but you kind of connected these dots and why did, why do you think you, you were able to see it? And do you think other people at wall street see it, but they just don't say anything because of their paychecks depend on it? Or, um, you know, why, why did you feel the need to start publicly decrying 
um, some of the the nefarious activities that have been occurring at central banks and and Wall Street. And it goes back really to Max and Stacy. You know, when we met in two thousand and three, and after a couple of years, you know, Stacy had a background in television and film production and mm-hmm. story editing, and um, and and almost. Um, you know, um, script doctoring, if you will. She's, she's, uh, able to, um, edit and, and doctor scripts in, in, at a very, very high level. And, um, I had always been doing both finance and media to some degree. I had done, you know, people, as I've said, you know, I did, did stand up comedy when I was younger and, uh, I've done a lot of television. So, we started to do content. We started to do actually podcasting even before the term podcasting was invented and just putting it out there. So the, what, what the substance was, what we decide, what we were doing was primarily it was me talking about markets and finance, the way other people in markets and finance talk about markets and finance. So it's not so much me blowing the whistle on stuff. It's just, I would just talk the way brokers and bankers talk with each other. I mean, this is the way bankers and brokers talk to each other when they're at the office is everybody knows it's a scam. Everybody knows it's a huge criminal enterprise. Everyone knows that they're part of a racketeering criminal enterprise. Jamie Dimon is not ignorant of the fact that he's part of a criminal enterprise. Every banker on Wall Street knows this. Every banker in the world knows this. Every broker knows this. And this is how they talk to each other when they're, you know, behind the scenes. Nobody pretends that it isn't a criminal enterprise. So I just, the the content was just me talking like I would to another broker. This is how people talk. Like, here's the Financial Times. And I would say, here's the story. And I'd say, I'm I'm a professional. Let me deconstruct this for you for the audience and let them know exactly what, what's being communicated here. This is actually a cheat sheet for the criminal class. It's, it's not journalism even. It's like, they're just flashing like semaphore of fraud to the global banking population. And, um, so that's, that's how, you know, it got, it got going. I mean, it's just like, um, I think a lot, of, you know, any professional trade group, when they get together, you know, they talk shop, you know, I'm sure lawyers are, you know, when they get together, they, you, you would, you would be surprised how they talk to each other about the law business, right. Or in the doctor business, the medical profession, I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, you put a group of doctors together you'd be surprised on what they say at the convention, right. It's same thing with bankers and brokers. It's, so this is the way people in this business talk. So and I think that, and that, I think people find that interesting because um, they, 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 a lot of people, particularly with money and finance, they, they are very easily um, kind of distracted by the language that's being used in the financial press or on CNBC to hide the shell game that's going on. And so um, that's why people find it find it interesting. So. Um, it was kind of a continuation of just what I've been doing and, yeah. and, and people really kind of, um, appreciate that. So, um, like, you know, the character, you know, then a lot of films came out that were in this genre. So like boiler room, yeah. uh, the Wolf of wall street margin call. These are all it's films true. that came out in the genre uh, behind the scenes, Wall Street, uh, you know, um, to blow the lid. I mean, and it shows people speaking as they do in the office, right? Margin Call is a great film, and everything or The Big Short. It's another dramatization of what happens in brokerage and banking offices every single day around the world. There's every, those stories play out every single day. There's always a, a Big Short going on somewhere every day. Um, and these things are not, this, this is the grist of the business is, uh, you know, the so-called efficient market theory doesn't exist. It's just a bunch of guys in a Bloomberg machines manipulating prices better than the other guy at their Bloomberg machine manipulating prices. That I mean, that's, 
the entire world of finance. There is no price discovery. To get back to my favorite topic of price discovery, all prices are fraudulent at this point in the game because they're not based on supply and demand. They're based on technologically uh, the ability to move prices in the direction you want it to move to hit targets that trigger other events. That's what's being done. There's no supply and demand in any market at all, anywhere. So, that's why it's so confusing. That's why the economy is so messed up. That's why people are so uh, at a loss to describe why things can be so messed up. It's because actually everything on any market anywhere is mispriced. If you look at the shitcoin market, which is like 25,000 shitcoins, it's actually a mirror of everything else. It's like the shitcoin market is actually the market. That's the way everything is. It's completely mispriced nonsense. Um, it, and the shitcoiners didn't invent market manipulation. You know, they're just mimicking what the system already was. You know, and it's interesting to, for me, who's been in the business for over forty years, to see how the regulators have responded to it, particularly Gary Gensler over at the SEC, and and this growing awareness about what's really going on with these shitcoins and how the shitcoiners have been able to play dodge, you know, hide and seek with regulators for so many years. And the regulators are very slow to act. And so the, the more sophisticated shitcoin scams are aware of that. And the way that they constructed themselves was to purposefully avoid the regulatory scrutiny. Um, I'm not going to name any of them because um, I don't want your timeline to be filled with a bunch of bots <laughs> who work for these shitcoiners, so I won't name any of them. But um, we know the, the the most egregious of them, and they're designed to be uh, regulatory obfuscating the playing field. And and so it's, to see the regulators he's finally kind of wake up to what's going on, you know, and a lot of people say, if I can jump in here on into my own conversation, let me jump into my own mind. <laughs> uh, so, uh, why would I have anything to say positive about the regulators? You know, this is some a theme that you'll see people say, you know, why are you saying anything about the regulators in any positive way? Mm-hmm. And the fact is that, Markets without regulation don't function at all. There's no such thing as a narco capitalism. There is no such thing as markets are just self-regulating and take care of themselves and everybody is uh, goes happily down to the invisible hand school of perfection. And that's false. Uh, just like in any like professional sports, you would need an umpire. You would need a referee. You need, there's somebody on the field has to actually be there calling, you know, making sure that the players are playing within the rules of the game, right? That's how, and the same thing with markets, there are rules and laws and to make them competitive so that the outcome is mutually beneficial for all participants, you need, um, regulation. Everything is regulated. Now, the thing about Bitcoin is that it's self, it is self-regulating and it is perfectly regulated within itself. It's inert within itself. That's what gives it the aesthetic beauty. That's why it's mm. artistic. When you look at the Sistine Chapel, you, it, 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 it's self-referentially perfect or beautiful or aesthetically pleasing because it obeys the laws of art or architecture or vision or or perception, or it, it 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 obeys certain laws of, of of innate to human beings in terms of what we consider to be art uh, versus schlock, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's a difference, and so with Bitcoin, all of that is self-contained, and so it, it that's why regulators can't touch it and won't touch it is because it already has achieved escape velocity and it's already perfect and referentially to itself mm-hmm. and that, and it's, and it's going to continue on it, on its path, on its vector with or without humans. You know, we need Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't need us. Um, and it's going to continue going. Even if humans became extinct, there would still be block blocks would still be coming 
for it'll be the forever. AI money. <laughs> yeah, right. At that point. <laughs> I mean, it would just be. It, it's 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 up to us whether we want to survive or not. I mean, this is a chance to for you know humans to 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 make it past what would appear to be a severe existential crisis in our species at the moment. But I'm not going to digress on that at the moment. So nevertheless, um, with price discovery and markets, they're all busted. They're all because everything became financialized since the eighties, 1980s, you had, um, really Reagan Thatcher. So Reagan came in and he had a guy named Mike Deaver, who was his, I think his chief of staff or were very highly placed in the White House, who was formerly with Merrill Lynch. He could have been the CEO of Merrill Lynch or he was a very highly placed Wall Street guy, Mike Deaver. So he got Reagan to introduce wide scale deregulation across the financial industry. And that did, and it started to chip away at the reforms of the, the Securities Act of 33 and 34, which are put in after the crash of 29. So in the, in the 1980s, and it culminated with the dissolving of the Glass-Steagall when Citigroup yeah. bought Travelers. And then they proactively, they I'm sorry, retroactively um, just got rid of Glass-Steagall. And when they did the deal, they violated the law, the Glass-Steagall law, clearly vi- clear violation. So they retroactively went and they got rid of the law in the past st- so that that deal could continue through. And that was really the rise also of um you know guys like like Jamie Diamond. Jamie so Diamond. Yeah. you have um you, you, that was the beginning of getting rid of all of the uh, all the regulations. The Commodity Futures Modernization Act under Clinton was a catastrophic um repudiation of the idea that markets should have any regulation whatsoever or that and we learned anything from the 29 crash. Um the getting rid of the uptick rule for short sellers was a catastrophe. Should never have happened. And you just go down the list every couple of weeks, they get rid of another plank, another piece of the regulatory framework that holds markets together. And in this place come things like high frequency trading, which is outright fraud. It's just like siphoning gas out of your neighbor's gas tank and, and saying you're making a market in gas. No, mm-hmm. you're just stealing gas. Okay. If you put a co-locate a server next to the New York Stock Exchange and just steal money, that's not making a market. You're just stealing money. Uh, the regulators have finally, after 15, 20 years now stepped in and said, you know what? This is actually stealing. We, we think we're going to clamp down on this. So anyway, um, regulators are now in, in the so-called crypto space and, and, and they're weighing in with their thoughts on Bitcoin, et cetera. But, you know, it's interesting to, to, to watch this because I've been in doing this for over 40 years and compl- I'm very familiar with having been a licensed securities broker dealer for many years myself and, uh, quite familiar with the Securities Act of 33 and 34. And um, so um, <laughs> yeah. the, the, any, any of the cases that are before the SEC now, um, the SEC will win. Let me, let me, let me make that <laughs> prediction <laughs> because the SEC is a protection racket for Wall Street banks who don't want the competition. And so at the end of the day, you know, the SEC will win uh, all, all of these challenges. Uh, and, um, you know, which, I mean, I, I believe I will be proven right in this case. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but, um, there's no room. There's nobody is going to, uh, is going to win against the SEC. Um, I, I was at this event like four or five years ago. Remember the ICO craze of like five years ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was kind of my my journey toward maximalism was, I'd say, it goes back to the ICO days. I think, I mean, that hit. There was Bitcoin. Then there was a bunch of shit coins that came in after Bitcoin that were, um, you know, cute little coins. Um, Pure that coin, came in, like all these, yeah, the like prime prime coin, you know, the they're prime coin, yeah, find prime numbers and things, and um, and that was like a period where things were kind of cute. It's actually kind of like Hollywood Stock Exchange in my mind at that time. It was like 
And so like Kanye West did a coin. Bill Murray had a coin. It was like celebrity coin. It was like, you know, a lot of bullshit. Then the ICO started and like, I was like, wait a minute, that's a security. That's clearly a security. Unquestionably, that's a security. So this is when my maximalism kicked in. This is when I was like, okay, somebody's got to stand up for Bitcoin and Bitcoin only because otherwise this is just going to go right into the SEC's lap. You're just going to, you're driving right into a, a bone crusher wood chipper called the SEC. The, and the SEC, I know from experience, they're ruthless fuckers. And if you call your shitcoin an ICO instead of an IPO, that's not going to work. It's They're going to come. And they came. And they got in there just going to keep coming. They're not going to stop. And they've already decimated a fuckwad of these things. And they're not going to stop. Um, and so, I mean, that was... So that, I mean, we got to go back. That's like in the 2014, 2013, 2014 period when those ICOs started to pop up, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And so that's when, like, I had a change toward maximalism, which became maximalism, which was actually goes back to 2012, that term, which is another story. But anyway, um, so... Uh, the, you know, the, the, the regulators, uh, as, as I, as I say, so what's left, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, again, I, I kind of got a point to Michael Saylor who speaks el eloquently on this and brilliantly on this and his takedown of that guy in the Caymans was one of the greatest things ever in this history of Bitcoin. Um, I forget his name, but he's that that shit coiner in the Cayman Islands who likes to shill a lot of garbage. And Michael Saylor was on his podcast and just, and he, th this guy was trying to convince him that, that what he Raul was, Paul. yeah, what he was shilling w were not securities, you know, and Saylor was just like ripped them to shreds. Like it was right <laughs> on this, on the podcast. And it's just like, it, it's just a beautiful thing. Right. Um, yeah. so, I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, it's just, there's nothing, incorrect about any of that so um that's 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 where we're at here i mean with with el salvador it's bitcoin country and the benefits are great you know um there's no nobody's arguing the merits of some shit coin it's like we're past it already we're we're just on bitcoin maximalism so Was we're not Wasting our time. Like the shitcoiners, didn't they try to come into El Salvador, and then um, they kind of had to get like pushed away, and they were like, "No, no, no, we're just we're going to do Bitcoin here." Like if I right. remember, well, that well, just like remember, um, Car, the Central African Republic, they made oh, Bitcoin yeah. legal tender, and then the shitcoiners flew in, and they destroyed it. So similarly with El Salvador and they announced Bitcoin legal tender, then these sh shit coiners showed up and um, they were um, shown the door, <laughs> essentially. I, I, I mean, the work that we do, Max and Stacey, um, w was instrumental in, um, in, in, in um, exercising the shit, the shit coins. It's like we did an ex exorcism. <laughs> right for for sure so yeah. um then the country um passed a new law securities law which says bitcoin is legal tender and everything else is basically a security so our, our approach is that everything else is is starts off as a security you know if you want to you're free to register your shitcoin as a security. You go to the securities commission and, and get it registered as as a as a security. But our position is that everything that's not Bitcoin is a security. So if we don't have it perfect, we don't care because the benefits of having it this way far outweigh. You know, the the better the good outweighs the perfect. In this case, it's like oh, we maybe there's some nuance there, but what's the point of spending even a, one second on any nuance when you, the benefit of being Bitcoin country itself far outweighs 
all the time hassle and aggravation of arguing with shitcoiners about the nuance of some shitcoin when at the end of the day, they add nothing. They're going to add nothing. We know that for a fact. The, at the end of that conversation is nothing. So why even engage in that conversation? It's like there's Bitcoin. It does it all. Bitcoin country. It's here. It's like that's that's our position. And here's the law. Right. So if you want to argue, go down, you know, talk, get a lawyer and discuss it in the appropriate venue. But, but that they're not having this conversation. The brand is Bitcoin country. It's a multi hundred billion dollar brand. It's a twenty eight billion dollar economy. It's going to be a hundred billion dollar economy. You know, Costa Rica's got a $60 billion economy. There's no reason why El Salvador can't surpass Costa Rica and be a 70 to $80 billion economy. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. We want to be big and we can do it with Bitcoin and Bitcoin only as Bitcoin maximalists. Well, Bitcoin country is certainly benefiting from uh, Max and Stacy, I have to say. <laughs> and uh, so thanks for your work down there. Thanks for coming on the show. I think that's a good place to uh, to end it. I mean, where, where do you want people to read more about your work or about what you guys are doing in El Salvador just to point people in the right direction? Well, read. you should get a copy of my book on Amazon, The Book of Max. Oh, yeah. It's, it's got some of the lowest ratings on Amazon. People <laughs> absolutely hate this book, according to Amazon. <laughs> So they say it's the worst overpriced piece of shit they've ever bought on Amazon. <laughs> so how how can you go wrong? It's it's produced by Swan. <laughs> right? Brecky is the hilarious. art director. I, I Brecky is the art here. director on it. Yeah, the art there. I love it. It's just no, it's, it, 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 it's it is a lot terrible. of fun, actually. I would say get that book. It's in English and Spanish. So you know, nice. uh it's a lot of fun. And uh and then all the you know, the usual social media dumpster fires you very find <laughs> trolling and and psychotic behavior as usual nothing unusual as usual psychosis <laughs> yeah well check out the psychosis max kaiser uh at max kaiser thank you for coming on the show and uh thanks for all your work for uh, for bitcoin i uh, really appreciate it man okay well it's always a joy to to to, to see you and to, to have these chats yeah, I always learn a lot. So thank you, sir, and have a wonderful day. If you care about your financial future, you need to check out a couple of our offerings, including Swan IRA and Swan Private. Swan Private is our white glove concierge service where you get a trusted partner on your Bitcoin journey. We offer all kinds of education and research projects as well as exclusive events to our Swan Private customers. Check it out today at swan.com private. Also, Swan IRA. Swan IRA is the best way to gain exposure to real Bitcoin in a tax advantage account, like a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, or rolling over your 401k. So if that interests you, check it out at swan.com slash IRA today.